A story they're writing today A wall that they're climbing You can carry the past on your shoulders You can start over Welcome to the broadcast of Calvary Chapel, Jacksonville Where the pastor is Pastor Ricky Rueda Grab your Bibles and read along Now here's Pastor Ricky Tonight is our night of testimony as we focus on what the Lord is doing, um, what He has been doing in the lives of those who are here at the church. And so um, the reason we do these is so that we want those who are here in the church and those of you listening online to remember that we read the Word and we read of these miraculous works that God is doing. And some of us, sometimes we forget, and honestly, maybe it's just between months, we get so bogged down by life that we forgot that God is still working. And so once a month, we take time to see not how good the people in the church are, the people in the community are, but to hear how good God is within those individuals. And tonight we have um, Pastor Paul, who is one of our newer pastors here at the church, going to come and share his testimony. And... Um, I'll let him share. Are you planning on sharing how we met or how we ended up getting in touch? Because that was pretty interesting. You were not. Okay. Well, <laughs> so he, uh, I think, did you, I think you called us out of the blue and we're talking about coming down to New Bern. Yeah. And um, we got linked up over the phone. I didn't really know who Paul was. He didn't know who I was. And um, I was actually having dinner with the pastor, Calvary Chapel Greensboro at the time. And we were talking about, um, this guy that we didn't know who was coming down to Newburn who called us both. And um, I think Paul called us at the exact time that we were discussing Paul coming down to Newburn. And all three of us were able to talk to one another, pray for one another. And from that moment on, um, I think the Lord has been building a relationship between he and I and um, Lord willing, hopefully at least, hopefully the feeling is mutual. I have enjoyed the fellowship I have enjoyed being refined by his wisdom and his insight here at the church. I'm excited that you guys would be blessed by it as well as he takes over men's ministry and some of the other ministries here at the church. Um, but Paul has been a senior pastor for a long time and has been being used by God for a while. And um, I'm excited to hear what he has to share with you all tonight. So if you would, please give Pastor Paul a hand. Shalom, y'all. Man, I'm hot. I brought a rag up here in case I get Pentecostal on y'all. Well, it's good to be here this evening. It's been quite some time since I've actually shared my testimony, so let's hope I get it right. Um, <clears throat> yeah, Ricky... Uh, Ricky and I, uh, actually I was trying to get in touch with the, the Greg, Pastor Greg, who planted this church 20 some odd years ago. I, I wasn't even aware that Pastor Ricky was here. So when I called and left a message, I'm trying to get Pastor Greg and then he calls me and says, oh, by the way, yada, yada. I said, oh, okay, well, cool. So uh, he and I ended up getting together, um, having breakfast together. As Christians, please, always look for a reason to eat, okay? Because Jesus was always eating, okay? So it's a biblical trait. But nevertheless, um, I ate before I came here. I normally don't do that before I teach or sing or anything. So if things start, if I start making some weird noises up here, you know, it's, it's the woman God gave me. She, she needed to eat, so I had to feed her. <laughs> See how this is starting out? Okay. <clears throat> well, if you would uh, join me first, uh, and we'll just uh, lift up this in prayer. Father, as we come before your throne of grace, as always, we just want to thank you, first and foremost. But also, you tell us to come boldly. And we recognize that as a sanctified boldness, as you command us to come to your throne that way. And Lord, just uh, the testimony of your grace working in yet another man's life. Um, 
Thank you for these testimonies. May we always uh, be mindful to share them with people so that they can see and taste that the Lord is good. And so we just offer this time to you and we do it in Jesus' name. And those in agreement said, amen, amen. All right, well, I just wanna put out a caution at the beginning of this, okay? So things shared this evening, uh, some things will be general, uh, some will be very detailed and specific, some may be graphic. Now, I don't, don't mean in a pornographic way, but some of the things that you know I've experienced, <clears throat> That's just the way it was. But also things shared this evening. Please hear this, especially those of you online that may be listening to a testimony for the first time. The things that I will share, for the most part, are in the past, okay? And the reason I bring that up is because what that means is I have been forgiven for them, all right? Therefore, Y'all must forgive me as well, because God has, okay? So, um, and the only reason I really bring this up is because I have, in past experience, known times where people gave testimonies that maybe a person listening heard something that they never thought of about that, that individual, and the focus of that individual that heard it ended up going to that past event and it made them change their mind about somebody. And that can't be done. Because when God forgives, it's as far as it is from the east and the west. Okay, that, that's how far apart that is. So we need to be mindful of that. Ultimately, I say that because the reason why we're here is simply because the Lord has done a work of grace in an individual's life. And tonight, that's my my testimony. So applying that caution in our lives is something we need to be mindful of. Let me read a passage to you from the book of Romans. Romans 14, 4. Uh, I'll even read it from the uh, Philistine Bible, I mean the ESV Bible. It says, uh, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. And again, um, there's good reason I, I bring this up. It's because as terrible as some people's testimonies can sound, it should never draw our attention away from what God has done in an individual's life, amen? And so the bottom line is you and I, brothers and sisters, are here tonight to give praise to God for his transforming grace. Amen. Amen. I think we can all share in that thought. So I'm going to read another passage to you which I think describes my life. And it comes from 1 Timothy 1. Uh, It'll be verses 12 through 16. I will be reading this from the New King Jimmy version. And uh, that's the Bible Jesus used, so I figured it'd be the best one to use. But anyways... It says this, Paul is speaking to his protege, his young pastor that he has discipled. And he says, and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me, why? Because he counted me faithful, putting me into ministry. Although I was, please notice, formally, past tense, a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. But here's the contrast. I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. And this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am present tense, Paul says, the Apostle Paul, as well as myself, of who I am chief. And so Paul is certainly letting us know that he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, and he still recognizes he's a sinner, all right? He's saved by grace. However, for this reason, verse 16 would conclude, and this is so important, for this reason I obtained mercy, why? That 
in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long suffering. Why? As a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Paul is saying, listen, basically, if I can be saved, anyone can be saved. You just need to respond to the love of God through the person of Jesus Christ. So, on with the testimony. I was born at a very young age. I think I was about zero. And as I came up, I was raised unchurched. I was not raised up in the church. There's a hard crowd here tonight. I was unchurched. I had, as I recall, one friend in elementary school, and I was probably only in first or second grade. Um, My friend invited me to, I guess it was a vacation Bible school. For about a week, I went to this church building, a huge thing. Uh, we, we had a lot of fun. We played games, did all kinds of things. I don't ever remember anything about the Lord in that whole event, but nevertheless, that was about the most church experience I had as a young kid. And interestingly enough, later on, this was a, a Baptist church, so when you say that, you got to say it correctly, Baptist. It was a Baptist church, and they're very, you know, follow-up. They go out, they send families to the house. And uh, so the, uh, a mother came with a, another woman to my house uh, at the time and came in. My mom let, let her in, and they talked. And what's interesting is when that lady who came to give her the love of Jesus Christ through the testimony of Christ, she left my house crying. Think about that. Well, how is that possible? Because my mom was an extremely intelligent woman and she was all into intellect and she could shred people with her words. She was so proud of herself for doing that. Now, I really didn't even know about this till much later on in my life. But I just thought to myself, how awful was that? Well, moving on, I have no recollection of the gospel throughout basically my entire upbringing. Even in school, um, all the way through high school, I never heard the gospel that I can recall once. No one ever talked to me about the gospel. Well, at the age of 21... I bought my first house. I was working from the day I turned 18. I had a very good job. I worked in uh, the electric industry with making high voltage electricity, building power lines, all that type of stuff. And at the age of 21, I was able to purchase my own house. Now I was single. And so from that point on at 21, it was party, 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 party. That's what my life was about. Uh, I was a swing shift worker, which meant I worked rotating shifts, midnights, evenings, and days. That's the way they rotated backwards. But since I had my own house, I had a four-bedroom, two-bath house, one half acre of land. I'm a musician. We had live bands and keg parties. Every chance I wasn't in the power plant working, that's what Paul was doing. And so... It wasn't until a couple years later that I really ever heard the gospel. The first time I remember hearing the gospel and realizing it was the gospel was sometime shortly after January 28th, 1986. Does anybody know what happened on that date? You historians... That is when the Challenger launched and blew up. I was at work at the power plant. One of my jobs was to unload hydrogen, a lot of hydrogen, because that's how we cooled many things in the power plant. Well, those truck drivers that would come in there, you know, they're they're always cordial. Well, most of them were. But this one particular time, 
shortly after this explosion of the Challenger and, and all that went on with that, this hydrogen truck driver comes in. I have to go down and unload him. There's a protocol. There's a procedure. You know, you just got to be really safe about everything. And so with that, this guy backs up to the racks. And I mean, we had racks of hydrogen cylinders, three high. They were huge. We had enough hydrogen to blow that power plant up as well as the Marine Corps base at Quantico. That's how much hydrogen we had on site. But nevertheless, he backs up, he gets in place, he sets his brake, he opens up his truck door and he says, such and such is my name and preaching the gospel's my game. And I was just like, what? And so this was the first time I heard the true and pure gospel of Jesus Christ. Did I respond well? No, not at all. Because my character was very much like the apostle Paul's was. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor of the church every opportunity I had. And I was an insolent man. We all pretty much know what a blasphemer is, right? Someone that speaks ill of another. In my case, I spoke ill of God. I was a persecutor of the church. But the term persecutor itself means it's just one who insatiably wants to do harm to others. And that's kind of where, what my character was about at that time. Now, I know that's kind of hard to believe looking at me, but that's the way I was. And I was also an insolent man. And that word is where we get our legal term hubris. I was a violent aggressor. I wasn't one that said, okay, just leave me alone. Um, no, I was an aggressor in it. And so with all that being said, I did not receive this man's presentation of the gospel very well. I told him what he could do with it. But nevertheless, I was 23 years old when I heard the gospel from that man. 23 years. What am I getting at? One thing is every opportunity you have to give the gospel to somebody, do it. Don't ever let somebody go 23 years. Look at everybody like they've never heard the gospel in their life. Because actually, that's what we're supposed to do. We heard about that recently in the teaching. But nevertheless, this particular driver came on that occasion and one other time. And so I knew who he was this time when he showed up. Hey, I just ba basically gave him what for and said, you know, you got a job to do. I got a job to do. Just do it and shut up. That's the way I was. So maybe some of that character that was in my family <clears throat> was a part of who I was. But fast forwarding from there, 1986, very tragic event. 1987 for Paul Smith was, well, 1987, I had the greatest day of my life up to that point. And during that year, and I had the worst day of my life in 1987. In February of 1987, I had a daughter. She was born uh, February, greatest thing ever happened in my life. Uh, problem was, she was born out of wedlock. But nevertheless, it didn't change the fact that she was my little pumpkin head, okay? So if you ever get to meet her, call her pumpkin head, all right? If she watches this, she's going to be embarrassed. Too bad. But the worst thing that happened also in that year the worst day of my life is. On December 21st of 1987, four days before Christmas, a friend of mine who, we were best of friends, we've been through so many things together. I was the best man at his wedding. Uh, we were uh, sparring partners because we were on a tournament circuit where we went and fought in tournaments and so forth. And he was going through a divorce. And so he was staying at my house, and I was just, you know, trying to help, help him through something. Like I say, I was single. I had my own home. He came, he crashed out. And I was really trying to just help him get through that. I used to work 2.30. When I worked evening shift, I worked 2.30 in the afternoon to 10.30 at night, and then I had at least a half-hour ride home. That night, I came home. 
I found my best friend who had gone into my room, got my weapon, and decided to blow his head off in my living room. And that's what I came home to. It was not a, a very good day. So my best friend here, <clears throat> I'm standing here, I'm in shock. There was so much that, that transpired during that time. I, I won't even go and bore you with the details or the gory ones. But I can tell you this. This event on December 21st, 1987, arrested the spiritual attention of Paul Smith. All of a sudden, the reality of death that was in my living room on my couch became something so real that I had never understood up to that point. So basically what happened was that night when I found my friend, the battle for my soul began. Now what do I mean by that? Up till that point, I really didn't care. Death had never touched me like that. You know, people die, you go to a funeral, yada, yada, yada. But that night was totally different, the way I experienced death. But when you're living the life that I lived up to that point, Satan has no reason to bother you because you're, no, you're not a threat to him. But at that point in time, my spiritual attention <clears throat> was arrested. Somehow my parents ended up there at my house. They were on the other side of the county. I guess the emergency crew called them. And when I, <clears throat> I got in my parents' car, the only thing that I could think of, I asked my mom and dad, I said, where is Terry? Now my mom trying to be gracious to her son, gave me an answer that was unbiblical, but it, you know, it made me feel good. But there was no truth or reality to it. Okay? But, during the following seven years, the battle for my soul changed my personality. Because of that event and the things that went on in my mind uh, after seeing all that, my personality just started changing. I wasn't really a nice guy before that event, okay? Just the truth. I would say I'm not a prejudiced individual. I hate everybody, okay? I was an equal opportunity hater, so it didn't matter to me. But the bottom line was I was a drunkard prior to my the death of my friend. However, prior to that death, I was a happy drunk, so I guess that made it okay. I was also a righteous drunk. Me and a friend joke about this every once in a while. I was a righteous drunk. I was a drunk because I didn't do drugs. <laughs> I just drank and got drunk. So anyways, but I was. I was a, I was a drunkard. And the reason why I use that terminology, brothers and sisters, is because that's what the Bible uses. I was not an alcoholic. Alcoholism was not a part of my life. And I'm going to say this. I'm a drunkard because the Bible said I was. An alcoholic who has caught, who's caught in alcoholism, that's when sin becomes a sickness. And now it's no longer my fault. The Bible doesn't let us do that. Does everybody understand where I'm coming from? That's why I'm so much into words, okay? So with me, I was a drunkard, but I was a happy drunk. And the majority of the other drunks that I hung out with, they loved to be around me because I was such a jokester. I even had a nickname that I was awarded because of my drunkenness. It was called Slam Dancer. That tells you that to the degree that I would drink. However, after my friend's death, that's when I really became a strong blasphemer, a persecutor of the church, and an insolent man. 
I mean, my life just became that way in general. That's all I walked in. I, basically, I was just really mentally messed up over this event. And the thing was, this was noticed by my wife-to-be, my future wife, okay? Because somewhere around 1988 or 89, I'm not even, I don't really remember what year it was. Uh, it had probably be closer to 88 because uh, my little pumpkin head was still a little pumpkin head at that time. And she's nodding her head, so I must be on track here because <clears throat> I was out at a, a store doing some grocery shopping and I had my little pumpkin head in the basket and we we're just going around. And <clears throat> my future wife... I run into her in this store, and she's got a girlfriend with her. We knew each other. I mean, we grew up together, okay? Uh, she was my seventh grade girlfriend, okay? We'll get into that in a little bit. But knowing each other from, you know, growing up together, in the store, she admitted later in life after we had gotten together that the reason why her and her girlfriend basically ran away from me is that she could literally see in my very person the distraughtness of how that event of suicide affected me. Now, I didn't know it, you know, but she said she could recognize that I was just messed up, so she didn't want to have nothing to do with me. So her and her girlfriend boogied on out. Interesting enough, in 1990, the summer of 1990, she and I ran into each other again. And this was at a local park, and we both had our children, all right? I had my daughter, who was a couple years older at this time, and I had my niece with me as well. And she had a son and a daughter with her. She didn't run away from me at that point. So, I mean, I had been through a lot, but I had healed somewhat to obviously to the point where the distraughtness in my life was not as recognizable, I don't, I would say, because she didn't run away from me. And that's really interesting to me is because we sat there and chatted for a while, which was real nice. Uh, and she she had just been through a divorce. And so... She's got her own trauma that she's been dealing with. But anyways, in 1990, basically, you know, there was a new season of life for me. You know, it was called marriage. (laughs) Since she had been my seventh grade girlfriend, uh, though she broke up with me and crushed my heart, um, yeah, tore tore me up because she broke up with me. I still thought of her as the most beautiful girl in the world. And I still do. 33 years later. But the point I want to get at is seeing her again with somewhat of a stable mind just re-solidified that in my mind. I just, you know, man, that girl's gorgeous. And we always could talk as long as I wasn't messed up mentally. And so what was interesting, what's interesting to me is I look back on this in seventh grade before she became my girlfriend, I had prayed to God that God would allow her to be my girlfriend. Now, even though I was the type of person I I was, I always prayed to God. Didn't know anything about God. But I knew this. I knew there was a God. I just didn't know how he existed, what he looked like, or any of that. But in seventh grade, I can remember kneeling down at my bed and praying, Lord, I will never. And these are my exact words because I remember them like they were yesterday. And I said, I will never love another girl like I can love her. And then she became my girlfriend. And then she broke up with me and crushed me. But anyways, as we moved on, here we are several years later, graduated high school, been through some traumatic events in our, in our lives. Um, what I did is went by her, 
her parents' house because she didn't tell me at the park where she was living or anything. And so I knew where her parents lived. They lived around the corner from where I grew up. So I stopped by her parents' house. I gave them my number and asked them if they would pass it on to her, which I didn't know whether they would or not. But hey, it's worth a try. Because all this emotion was coming back to me. And so that's how I decided to pursue her. And lo and behold, the next thing I know, she called me up. And so we got to talking, and we decided we were going to go out uh, and on a date. Now, I just want to let you know this so she doesn't have to tell you. I'm a cheap date, okay? I don't believe in spending a whole lot of money. I didn't make her pay for dinner, okay? Thought about it, but I didn't. I had my own house. I had a nice kitchen. I, I love to cook because I love to eat. I know that's obvious. But nevertheless, so I just invited her over to the house, and I made a, a gourmet meal. And uh, thing was, we continued to date. Things were going well. Three months later, she came to her senses, just like the prodigal son did, Realized how much she had messed up back in seventh grade, and she proposed to me, and I accepted. Okay, and that's not a that that's not a joke. <laughs> that's just true. So, on November fourth, nineteen ninety, Brenda and I were married, and we just celebrated our thirty third anniversary this past fourth. You know, what's a little side note, what was really funny is because I was doing the rock and roll thing and the clubs and all that stuff and working full time. And it was late, early morning, I guess, on a Sunday uh, when I probably should have been in church, but I wasn't. I was sitting in a, we were in a Denny's and a Denny's breakfast. It was 4 a.m. I've, you know, got done doing a show. You pack up your equipment, you know. It took her forever as my roadie to get everything packed up. But anyways, we, we're sitting in this restaurant and we're planning this wedding. Well, should I say she was planning this wedding? And she's going on and on about all this. There's so much anxiety building up in her. And finally, I just said, honey, honey, stop. I need to eat. No, I didn't. Say. I said, can, why don't we just get married next weekend and get it over with? That's how romantic I was over a bunch of eggs. The next weekend, we were married. She took it to heart, boom, it was a done deal. And so that's how that all came about. Well, with the marriage came the union of a mixed family, okay? We came together. We had an instant family. There was a three-year-old daughter. We had a six-year-old daughter, and we had a nine-year-old son, who was terminally ill. And she was aware of that. And before we got married, she made me aware of it as well. There was obvious, there was something physically wrong, but she explained to me that, you know, the, the illness he has, he will die from. It's 100% terminal. There is no cure. Anybody here old enough to remember the... Uh, what were they called, telethons? Telethons, Jerry Lewis for muscular dystrophy. Well, my son had one of those 40 neuromuscular diseases. It was called Duchenne. To give you an idea what that looks like, <clears throat> if you can think of Lou Gehrig's disease, which affects a male later on in life, with Duchenne, it starts from birth of a boy who has this disease. And they normally live up to 13 to 15 years old before they go into respiratory failure. And then most parents, because of the emotion and everything that happens so quickly, they throw that child on life support and then it's just extended misery for that, that person. And so here we are. In 1992... David, our son, and I will always refer to 
uh, him as my son because I raised him and he's the only son I ever had. As well as the biological daughter that Brenda brought into our marriage, that is my daughter. I raised her. She might not think of it that way, but that's okay. That's okay. And so in 1992, on our son's 11th birthday, he received a very terrible birthday present. At 11 years old, David lost his total ability to walk and from that point on was now stuck in a wheelchair. And of course, that would progressively get worse. David's disease is a neuromuscular disease. It was purely muscular. The muscles just basically atrophy and rot away through the time. But nothing was wrong with that man's brain. The brain is not affected. As a matter of fact, he was sharp as a whip. And so in 1992, David became a major influence for the Lord in my life, okay? We had taken a trip down to Richmond to visit one of Brenda's cousins. Uh, This was an older guy. He was our age, Brenda's age and my age. Uh, But he was a quadriplegic. And so we went down there and we're talking to people, eating food, and and, um, Brenda's cousin wanted to know if he could take David back in the back room and talk to him. We're figuring, okay, well, you know, he's going to help David understand not being able to walk anymore, starting to lose the ability in his hands and his arms, because this man was a quadriplegic, and he was living that way for years. Well, unbeknownst to Brenda and I, he was an on-fire evangelist. Her cousin was. We didn't know that. I know I didn't know that. But he led our son to the Lord. So David got saved in 1992. Not recognizing that he had gotten saved on that trip down there. However, when we got back home, his mother and I noticed a major change in his personality. It was like instant maturity and instant thankfulness. Now, David never was a bitter individual. I had all that covered. But the bottom line was, after he met his cousin and his cousin led him to the Lord, there was obviously a true transformation in David's heart. It was just so noticeable. And so therefore, I was personally impacted by this sudden and enormous change. I, as a, as a grown man working, doing all this stuff, I'm watching this kid go through what he's going through. And I'm thinking, how can this kid not be bitter and angry? Well, then we started playing church. For whatever reason, let's give credit to the Holy Spirit because like I said, the battle for my soul had started back in 1987 when I found my friend. I had started reading the Bible by that time. I had received a Bible for Christmas one year from the same woman who shredded an evangelist that came to her living room and made her leave crying. She had given me a Bible for Christmas one time. It was a living Bible, you know, paraphrased, but nevertheless, I'd started reading that, and I had decided, you know what, we're going to start going to church as a family. And so now I'm like, where where are we going to go to church? I don't know anything about this. And so at work, still living, uh, I remembered a guy that I worked with in the power plant, and he drank, he smoked, he cussed, and he said he was a Christian. And he went to a particular denominational church. I said, that's the church I need to go to. Something like that. So I found that local denomination in our town, and that's where we started going. So like I said, we just kind of play in church. But during the next couple of years, we were going to church. Life got very complicated. I'm working full-time. I'm working hundreds, as I said, hundreds of hours overtime. 
I'm playing in nightclubs almost every weekend. Sometimes I'm playing in nightclubs during the middle of the week. The whole time, David's health is rapidly decaying. And Brenda was struggling greatly with having a dying son. Now, we should all expect that. My daughter's biological mother was constantly causing problems for my wife and I. Um, I won't get into those details, but it was, it was a drag. else <laughs> put it. So, and also the, the church going, uh, it really wasn't saving me from being a drunkard either. So it was a pretty big show, but nothing was changing. Well, as I said, my son's life had such an impact on me, and I can remember this godly countenance of witness that he had as a young man. By this time, he's about uh, probably 13 years old. And with our house, it was an A-frame house, and it had a wing that came off. And in that wing or breezeway had a big window where you could look out into the front yard. And I can remember our son sitting there in his wheelchair, looking out that window at his sister's out there playing ball with all of their friends, and he just had this gorgeous smile on his face. And all I know as I looked at him, as I stood there watching him, and I, just, I thought to myself, I don't know what this young man has, but I need it. I need what he has. But the battle for my soul raged on. And so I fast forward to 1994, Christmas holiday. I had uh, joint custody with our youngest daughter and I had traveled down to a place called New Bern, North Carolina in 1994 to pick up my daughter and take her back. She lived on Cherry Point military base because her stepdad was a Marine there. And so we went down there, picked her up. Well, I went down there, picked her up, and came back. 12-hour trip back in those days. This is where it gets kind of detailed. Life was so complicated at that point in time that I was trying to figure out how I could get rid of my daughter's biological mother on a military base. And in 1994, in case y'all aren't aware of it, they do have capital punishment in North Carolina for premeditated murder. They still do, by the way. And my stupid brain is thinking this way. That's how, and my wife didn't know these things. She, I may have never even told her that. I don't, I don't even know. That's not something I share with people. But now you know. Well, after the 12-hour trip, my daughter and I arrived home in Manassas, where my two brothers and my wife were waiting for us to get home. And my brothers and I commenced our drinking festivities. After what I was dealing with and entertaining in my mind, it just, I was, again, I was a drunk. And all I remember before my blackout in drunkenness was, I was evangelizing my brothers for the Lord Jesus. Strange, isn't it? A drunk, plotting murder, messed up, and yet 
somewhere in my drunkenness, I started evangelizing, talking to my brothers about Jesus. And that's the last thing I remember until the next day. The next afternoon when I woke up, I was in the shower, not only feeling the effects of the night before, you know, in a physical capacity, but I was so broken in my soul. And I still have never really figured out how to explain this, but I, all I can say is when I was in the shower, I'm feeling miserable in a physical sense, but I was just so broken in my soul, and I started to cry. Tears were coming down my face, but nothing would come out of my mouth. Have you ever had a dream where you're trying to scream and nothing comes out? That's exactly what was happening to me at this point in time in my life. I'm in the shower and I just, I'm so convicted, I guess, about what I was trying to do and in the condition I was in while I was trying to do it. Well, as I was in this state, I'm trying to cry, but no sound will even come out of my mouth because it was just so deep. The pain was so deep. And finally, I got some words out, and I just said, God, my life is a mess. I can't fix it. My son is dying, therefore you must fix my life. Boom. I didn't pray the sinner's prayer, 1.52 of Romans, the Romans wrote. I cried out to God from brokenness and pain. And as soon as I did that, man, the sound just came pouring out of me like the water was pouring on me in the shower. And it was as if the world was coming out of Paul and off of Paul's shoulder. And I was as light as a feather. The interesting thing about that, my friends, is that was seven years to the day of when I had walked in my living room and found my best friend with his head blown off in my living room. You know, that seven's a very biblical number. I'm not into numerology or anything. I'm just saying it just, it catches my attention because for seven years there was such a battle for the soul. And so, basically, through my crying out to the Lord, knowing that I could not fix my life and the Lord had to, it sounded like, Hey, the law worked its way in my life, huh? I can't live a perfect life. I can't fix my life. You have to do it. Isn't that funny? Because Jesus had already done that. I just needed to be broken in order to come to him. And that's what happened. So I was saved. I became born again. Salvation changes a person's life. It changed my life. The first thing in my life that I found was I had peace. Just like the peace I saw in my son when he was in that breezeway looking at his siblings out there playing and he couldn't, but he was still full of joy for them because they could. That's the type of peace that the Lord gave me instantly. The anger that I had lived in for so long, boom, was completely gone. That's something that caught the attention of my sister-in-law. She said, you're just 180 degrees different from the way you were. Of course, now for me, open door, step in. She thinks she's saved now, but that's another story. My daughter's biological mother slacked off of badgering Brenda and I. Obviously, I didn't go through with the plan. I quit the nightclub scene. The Bible now started making sense to me as I read it. It wasn't a bunch of words. Yet, 
all these great things were going on, but David was getting worse and worse and worse. And so was Brenda. By this time, Brenda was heading toward a deep depression. Fast forwarding again, there's so many details. I'm just trying to keep this short. But fast forwarding to the year 2000. Brenda is saved by this time. And our oldest daughter is struggling inwardly and quietly. She was a very to-herself person. She was struggling so much with her brother and his dying. She's watching her brother die as she grows up. In the afternoon of February 3rd, David, our son, was struggling with intense pain. And this is not something that's conducive with his type of illness. It's, if you can thank the Lord about one thing with Duchenne muscular dystrophy is most Duchenne patients, they just don't have pain. But for some reason, some reason, he was experiencing a bunch of total body pain, which we really didn't understand at that point, but it didn't change the fact that that's what was going on in his life. And Brenda and I continued at that point in time, we were just tending to his medical needs because he had so many. I mean, he was on a feeding pump. Just about nothing worked in his body except his brain and he could speak clear sentences. And we praised God for that the whole time because he could always tell us what was going on with him, which we really thank the Lord for that. But during this time, we were back in his bedroom tending to his medical needs, and he's just in this pain, and he just says, why doesn't God just take me home instead of letting me continue? That's a direct quote. That's what he said. I'll never forget it. Because what came right after that was even more weird. And to my surprise, Brenda, in a loving way, as only a mother could be, said, David, have you asked him? In other words, have you asked him to take you home? David is an on-fire evangelist. He's 18 years old at this time. Nobody went in his room and came out without hearing about Jesus, period. That's just the way he had become. He lived his life for the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, after Brenda made this statement, I'm kind of standing back like, did she just say what? I'm just kind of, my mind's blown. I never thought I would have heard that. But I think she was just trying to calm David. Either way, David immediately and out loud started praying, God, would you please take me home? I, don't, I can't take this anymore. I have no benefit here anymore. I can't preach the gospel anymore. I mean, this is the way he was. In the early morning the next day on February 4th, probably about 1 or 2 a.m., <laughs> David started ranting and raving. He just, but he was, he was just talking crazily. However, in the craziness of his, his conversation, it was actually hilarious. And I praise the Lord for that because the reality of what was taking place was our son was now going into respiratory failure. His brain is lacking oxygen. He's trying to talk and say things, but it's just there's not enough oxygen. He's not making sense. And the things he did say actually made us laugh. You cannot tell me that this isn't the sovereign work of the grace of the Lord Jesus in this whole thing that's starting to take place. So as he was doing this, and he was going into this respiratory failure, I had to go back to bed because I had to go back up, get back up the next morning or a couple hours later and go to work. And so about four or five o'clock in the morning, I just really don't remember, Brenda came back upstairs and woke me up and said, David is asleep and he's unresponsive. In other words, he's going into a coma. 
And so with that, our oldest daughter got up that morning. She knew something was wrong. We didn't say anything because we weren't sure at that point in time what was going on. And so she goes out to the school uh, bus stop. Bus comes. She goes to school. Once she was out of the house, we were able to get in touch with his charge nurse, the one that handled it, or his case nurse. She comes out, looks at everything, examines everything, says, contact all your family. David's getting ready to die. Please bear with me. Upon hearing that, we started contacting everybody from both sides of the family. I and um, our daughter's stepmother went to the school to pick her up. She got called down to the office. She had no idea what was going on. She just kind of walks in the office, and you could just see horror on her face, even though she doesn't know. And with that, we just signed her out. We got her in the car and just said, you know, something's going on with your brother. So we figured it was best to get you out of school. So we got to the house, and by that time, there were many people at the house because, you know, we called a bunch of people, and we got all this family. Well, I have this one friend that he and I used to play music together. He's a guitar player and a singer. And we used to play at people's bedside as they were dying or maybe out of a hospital or whatever the case may be. And he and I were back in a, a different bedroom kind of warming our voices up and our fingers. And, and this guy's name is Paul as well. He's playing this song, and we're singing. All the family is basically crammed into David's room just to be around him. <clears throat> There's a particular song that Paul and I used to love to sing, and it's called... in the presence of a holy God. It's an older song. Just like all the songs I know. And as Paul and I were coming to, in the presence of a holy God, how majestic, when we were singing, in the presence of a holy God, David took his last breath and went to be in the presence of a holy God. Why is that important? And why am I sharing so much about my son? Because it played such a major role in the life of Paul Smith getting saved. But even after I was saved, watching the life of this man who steadily went down, he planned his own funeral. All I did, the first funeral service I ever did was for my son and I just executed what he had asked for. He even went out to the funeral site, talked to the funeral director, wanted to know about this and I mean, this is the way this kid was. Well, I should say a man. He was a man beyond, wisdom beyond his years. But what's interesting about that is you got to remember, seven, well, several years prior to this would have been 13 years prior to this, I saw death in the worst possible way. It was grotesque. It was just demonic. Yet, when our son went to be with Jesus, it was the most beautiful thing I ever saw. And the Lord even allowed me and Paul to sing while he entered into the presence of the Lord. That's how good God is. 
So I want to leave you all with a couple of encouragements. Number one, and this is for the young people in here and maybe listening online. I always speak to the youth people, the young people, the youth. I used to be a youth minister many, many years ago. I didn't have hair then either, but nevertheless, may I just simply say this to you young folk, never underestimate the power of God and the influence you can have in an older person's life when you walk faithfully in the Lord. Please understand the value that you have because of the grace of God working in your life and you being obedient and living it out. My son David was in a wheelchair the last eight years of his life, but his witness, his faith lived out, spoke to my soul unto the point of eternal salvation. Two, a godly countenance. I would ask us this evening, is our countenance the countenance from the Lord or are we absorbed by the temporary situations of our lives? Brothers and sisters, my countenance often determines if someone feels like I'm approachable. I'm not a small guy. I guess the bald head, you know, just, I've been, everybody thinks I'm a biker for some reason. And I'm not saying it's a joke, it's just true. You're a preacher? I thought you were a biker or a gang member. No, I don't even have a tat yet. Yet, I will be reprimanded for that later, but nevertheless. Sometimes I can be thinking so intensely on things, and even on things of the Lord, but for some reason my faith just kind of has a scowl on it, and my wife has to say, you okay? (laughs) You're looking so mad. Brothers and sisters, be mindful of your countenance. Focus on the Lord, but not to the point where you're wrapping your brain and twisting your mind to where your face is following along. Remember, Jesus loves me, this I know. Why? For the Bible tells me so. Your countenance, my countenance, often will determine whether people see us as approachable or not. I ask you this, was your Lord and Savior approachable even to little children? Yeah, he was. So let us be mindful of something. My son was that way. He just always had the joy of the Lord just beaming from him. A third thing I would say or ask is, how do we interpret healing? Now, I'm not gonna get into some faith and prosperity bunch of garbage here. And I'm not going to pull my wife up here and slay her in the spirit because that's all garbage. I know I'm going to get in trouble for that, but I'm used to that. I consistently, as a Christian, prayed for my son to be healed. And I believed with all my heart, and I still believe with all my heart, if it was for God's glory, he would have baffled the surgeons and the doctors and healed David. But, da- but the Lord didn't choose to do that. But he still healed David. He just gave him the ultimate healing. He brought him home into glory. At one point in time after, or, or actually it was just prior to, I think, you had told me, the Lord ministered to my wife's heart and just said, you know, preparing her for what was coming You've done a wonderful job of taking care of David. Now I have to take care of him from this point. And he did. He brought our son into the presence of a holy God, and he's no longer in a wheelchair. He's up there doing cabbage patch or any of the, he's ballroom dancing, whatever, but he is not in a wheelchair. The poor kid, he loved to sing to the Lord. He couldn't carry a tune in a bucket but I guarantee he can sing now. 
Then finally, I would say this. What Satan meant for evil, God used for good. You remember the life of Joseph? What y'all meant for evil, God used for good. Scripture tells us through the Apostle John, as he quotes Jesus, the enemy comes to rob, kill, and destroy. My friends, it's always a demonic attack upon somebody who takes their life. I'm not saying that makes them unsaved or this or that. All I'm saying is we need to understand that there's one person that wants humanity destroyed, and his name is Satan. But what Satan meant for evil, God used for good in my life. And through my friend's death, as grotesque as it was and as messed up as I was over it, in the years to come, the Lord would use that in my life to arrest my attention on spiritual things and on life after death and to God's glory I was able to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of that that day that David went to be with the Lord when Paul and I had sang that song and David just slipped on into eternity with the Lord I was cleansed of the grotesque view of death that I had I mean just totally taken away and I learned as the scripture declares in Psalm 116 15 precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints My friends, God works in our lives in so many different ways to bring us to the Lord. But he continues to work in our lives. And many times we have to go through storms, get through storms, take a break from a storm, enter back into a storm. That's called sanctification. (laughs) But we grow each time we do that.